In 2009, one woman believed she was abducted by aliens. What followed was a terrifying ordeal of alien visitation, nightmarish visions, encounters with terrifying creatures, a connection to the past, and a prophecy of destruction on the scale never seen before. Read Harvest, a true story of alien abduction by G.L. Davies, the true account that is changing the world's view on alien abduction cases. Harvest, a true story of alien abduction, is available from wherever books are sold. Should these events be true, then no one is safe. You are listening to the Paranormal Chronicles Radio Show. Here is your host, paranormal researcher and author of the best-selling A Most Haunted House, Gavin Lee Davis. Welcome. My name is G.L. Davis. I am the founder of theparanormalchronicles.com and author of the best-selling true accounts that are haunted horror of Haverford West and Harvest, the true story of alien abduction. Dare you read. Thank you for joining me on this epic once-in-a-lifetime interview. The Paranormal Chronicles podcast is brought to you by sick-books.com. Visit sick-books.com today and explore all the knowledge you need to explore the paranormal world. Thank you to everyone that has made Harvest, the true story of alien abduction, an international bestseller. If you haven't read, then read today and join the investigation. See what people are talking about. Now, let's get into this amazing interview on tonight's show. Can prophecy be proven? What is near-death experience? Was a UFO filmed and witnessed by many people? Can animals transfer their souls to you? Lionel Friedberg is a director and Emmy Award winning film and TV producer and writer. Lionel grew up in South Africa and began his career at the first TV station in Central Africa. Lionel has worked as a director and produced and directed for National Geographic, PBS and national broadcast and cable networks including the Discovery Channel, A&E and the History Channel. You may know him from such shows as Mysteries of the Bible, History's Mysteries and House of the Living Dead. He is also a New York Times bestselling author. He is based in Los Angeles, California and his new book is his superb memoir of his incredible life, Forever in My Veins. Read Forever in My Veins today from o-books.com or from wherever books are sold. Link in the description. Pembrokeshire meets Hollywood in this in what I believe is the greatest interview I have ever conducted. Sit back, relax and enjoy. This interview is epic. It will blow your mind on with the show. I would like to welcome the most incredible guest, one of the most amazing people I've ever spoken to in my entire life. He has motivated and inspired me on my life journey without ever meeting me. This is the wonderful Lionel Friedberg, author of the brand new book documenting his life forever 
in my veins. Thank you so much for joining us, Lionel. How are you today? Well, Gavin, I'm doing extremely well, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast, on your show. I appreciate it enormously. Thank you. I think probably you were the biggest guest we have ever had, ever. And we've rolled out the red carpet. We've got the finest mineral water in for you. <laughs> you know, anything you need will be done. So just for anybody who shouldn't or haven't heard of you, could you just give us a little introduction to who you are and what you've done with your life? Well, I now live in Los Angeles. I've lived in uh, here for the last 35 years, but I was born in South Africa and grew up uh, uh, in, in the apartheid system in South Africa as a child and uh, was very conscious and aware of the fact that the, the, the racial divide that existed in that country, even when I was a child, was, was, was a very, very disturbing element uh, and probably shaped a lot of my thinking. Um, and um, one of my passions was always movies. I loved the movies from, from, from a very, very early age. I blessed my mother for that. I was an only child and she took me to see a lot of films. And I fell in love with the movies uh, at the age of about five, I think. And um, my, my, my ambition was always to become a filmmaker. And after some years, when I had completed my, my, my high school, my education in South Africa, my parents moved away from South Africa and went to live in what used to be known as Northern Rhodesia, which was a British colony um, at, just at the south of the Congo border. It was the year 1960 that the Congo War, the first of the, of the Congo Wars, flared uh, up um, the Patrice Lumumba, who was the first uh, prime minister of the Congo after the Belgians gave the Congo its independence. He had just been assassinated in the province of Katanga, and Katanga and Northern Rhodesia were bordered one another. So they moved up there at that time, and I saw the end of colonialism, the ugly, violent side on the other side of the fence in the Congo. But in Northern Rhodesia, which is where my parents had moved, my father took a job at a store. He was, he, he was originally from Latvia, trained as a watchmaker, loved to tinkle and fix little tiny coil springs and things. Uh, uh, he could fix anything, but he, his world was a micro world, fixing watches. And he went to work in a little jewelry store up in the in the in northern Rhodesia, as a watchmaker. And uh, the town was a very very small one, but the town existed because of the copper mining industry. And there were a string of 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 towns which called, was called the Copper Belt. I think it's still called the Copper Belt today. And um, I moved up there and I thought that when I went up there, how exciting, because now is my opportunity to start making films like the ones I used to see as a kid. The African Queen, King Solomon's Mines, you know, Tarzan, all those marvelous films. I wanted to do that when I got there. But of course, when I got there, all I found was a copper mining town and not much else. And it was like manna from heaven that one day, uh, in the local newspaper, there was a newspaper that covered the news of all these little towns called the Northern News. And there was a little ad for stuff for a new television station that was opening, the very first television station in Central Africa. And for me, it was like magic because I had been making films as a child when I was in South Africa, my school, my friends, birthday parties, that sort of thing. And I thought, now I can find a professional career. So after I had arrived in the small town and not one, not knowing what to do, I immediately applied for a job. And by some miraculous means, I was 
accepted um, and to work at the station. And I helped them put the station together. They were still building it, wiring cables and putting copper wiring together, helping with the welding and God knows whatever else. And on the 15th of December in 1961, we went on the air, first television station in Central Africa. And it was absolutely extraordinary times because the colonies, British colonies were all being given their independence. The Congo was a flame. So nationalism was alive and well, and at some point, parts, you know, a flame in Africa. They were really interesting, fascinating times. But I brought with me the experience of having lived in the apartheid situation in South Africa. But now that was gone. That was behind me. And I'd like to backtrack for a moment, because as a child, I was introduced by one of my wonderful black nannies. Of course, we all had servants. You know, we were all privileged whites and we all had servants in South Africa. And one day I must have been about seven years old. My nanny said to me, it's my day off today and I'm going to visit a friend. Do you want to come with me? And I said to her, sure, I'd love to do that. And so we went to see a friend of hers. We were living at that point in a small town to the southeast of Johannesburg called Kempton Park. And Kempton Park is the town that is right next to the, the major international airport, which was still in its early days being constructed. I'm talking about the late 40s now. And I went with her to go and see her friend. And when we got to her friend's uh, little room at the at the back of the of the yard, of, of, uh, of the house where she worked as a servant, there were a number of other people standing outside her door, a queue, you know, of, of, of black, black people. And I said to my nanny, what are they waiting for? And she said, oh, they, 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 are, they are here to see her because she's also a doctor. And I said, what do you mean a doctor? And she said, no, she, she, she helps people. She heals people and she makes them better. That's all she said to me. And when it came time for us to actually go into her room and for her to spend some time with this friend, I, I saw these little bottles and jars in her room containing barks and herbs and all sorts of odd things. And then on the floor was a grass mat, and on the grass mat was a little bag, an animal skin bag. And inside that were bones and stones and little trinkets that she used. And I said to her, you know, how do you make people better? What do you do? I was a child. I was curious. And she said, well, I use the bones. The bones speak to me. I, I said, well, show me. Show me what you mean. And she, she, took, she took this little bag and she said, I turned them upside down. And then all these bones and stones and little trinkets fell on the grass mat. And she said, the way they fall, it is the ancestors that make them fall in a certain way. And then the ancestors speak to me. And when the ancestors of the person who has come to see me uh, for help or to heal them, or to tell their future or whatever it is that they that they need, the bones tell me what to say. And I said, that's absolutely incredible. So I was introduced to that concept as a child. That's all we did. That's all we did. We did. She didn't throw the bones for me. She didn't do any readings for me. But it was impregnated in my mind. So by the time I got to Central Africa, I realized that there was another dimension to the black folk and their culture and the whole society that we whites knew absolutely nothing about. And um, so here we are. Now I'm in, in Central Africa working at this television station. And after three years, Northern Rhodesia gets its independence from Britain. And the date is set for October the 24th, 1964, for independence. And at, from that day onwards, the country would become known as the Republic of Zambia. 
So I worked in this little television station and people from Whitehall and Washington and Lusaka, which was the capital of northern Rhodesia, soon to be Zambia, were in and out of the studio all the time being interviewed by our two news, uh, 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 the team of newscasters that we had. So I was aware of independence and who the players were and the drama of a country being reborn. You know, it was happening around me in this in this in the station. I was a young guy. I was, you know, 22. And um, after working there for three years, we all all of us, we it was entirely a white staff of about maybe 25 of us. We got a pink slip from the government. The station had been nationalized because of impending independence. And the government was now going to run the station. It was now no going to be called Zambia Television, and it was going to be controlled by the government, and we whites were no longer required to be uh, in, on the staff. Basically, we were fired, and we were all told, you will teach a black man your job. After six months, you will leave. Thank you very much for what you've done. None of us complained about this. Of course, we were all a bit shocked and disturbed about what we were going to do with our lives, but we could understand this. After all, you know, it is a black country, and uh, it, it seemed to be quite in order that um, this was the way of things. Local people needed to have the work, and they should take over from us. But for most of the people had come from the UK working at the station, and they could go back to the UK, go back to television, go back to ITV, BBC, whatever else. But I thought, what am I going to do? You know, I was still a very, very young guy, and um, I was very worried about what to do with myself, because I didn't want to go back to South Africa, primarily because of the apartheid situation and all of its ugly racist face that it presented to the world. You know, in South Africa, the twain never met uh, between white and black. White society knew absolutely nothing about their black neighbors. As far as they were concerned, those people were laborers, they were servants, they worked at, uh, you know, service stations pumping uh, gasoline, petrol, um, and that's all they did, you know, they, 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 they did menial tasks, um, and, uh, they were completely under the thumb of the white regime. And it was a very, very nasty, horrible situation. My friends and I, particularly in high school, I went to an all boys high school and, uh, we had a debating society and we often used to debate the, apart the apartheid system, uh, much to the chagrin and annoyance of the teachers, because we weren't supposed to discuss things like that. But apartheid was ugly. And if you were, if you were an English speaking South African, you were always against apartheid. If you were an Afrikaans speaking South African, it was a slightly different story because the powers that were in, st were in power at the time were primarily Afrikaners. And this is uh, the, the, the divide between the English society and the Afrikaans society was also vast. And that went back to the Boer War. The fact that the Afrikaners never really forgave the British or the English speaking South African for their loss during the Boer War. And when they eventually came to power in 1948, it was retribution time. Now they were in charge and they were gonna run the country their way and they institutionalized this racist system called apartheid. So it was an ugly system. Uh, um, and even my, you know, as I said, my, my, my buddies, my, my friends, you know, we found it abhorrent. So I didn't want to go back to that kind of world 
after having lived in Central Africa for a while, where it, it didn't exist, um, certainly not in the statute books. It was not a legal system as it was in South Africa. So I went home and we had a wonderful servant who worked for us. I was still living with my parents. Um, and we had a wonderful man who worked for us by the name of David Firi. I will never forget David. He was a wonderful guy, not very much older than me. He used to mow the lawn, you know, do the dishes, make the beds, uh, help my mother cook dinner. He was of the Bemba tribe, terrific guy. And he and I always used to talk about photography. We gave him a camera for Christmas one, one year. And, oh. and, and that was his dream to be to eventually have his own photographic studio. And so he and I were, 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 were buddies. We were friends. He wasn't just a servant in our house. And after I was told, you know, I had to leave the station in six months, I went uh, home and uh, it was a late night. But the next morning, you know, after I got up, um, I went and I said, David, I've got some horrible news. And he said, what? And I said, well, I've been fired, as has everyone else at the station, all of us whiteies. We have to leave the station. We've been told to leave. I don't know what to do. And I don't know whether I should go back to South Africa or what can, what, what, what should I do? And he sort of thought for a moment and he said, don't worry. I will take you to someone who can help you. And I said, like, like who, you know, what, who is this person? What can they do? And he said, don't worry, trust me. She will know what you must do. So in about three days after that, David and I went along a very bumpy little dirt road in my blue VW Beetle. And he took me to the outskirts of the town where we were living and the place was called Ndola. And on the outskirts of Ndola, uh, there was a little settlement of, of, of a little uh, African settlement, little villages and kraals, as they call them. And there was a little isolated hut uh, on the one side. And he, we drove. He said, "That's you go towards that place and stop there. And I went and we parked outside this little hut. It had a wooden door in the front. And he said, this is where we will find the answer. And I said, but who lives here? And he said, come, we will go and see. Knocked at the door. And an old, old hunched up um woman um opened the door now she was uh, she was i think she was a member of the bemba tribe but she was an albino she had one of those um, um uh, melatonin problems with the, with the skin okay so she was more white than than black but she was a bemba she couldn't speak a word of english and it was a hot hot day as it always is in central africa but she was she had a gray coat on and she had a rug over that and she said to us, come in, come in, come into the hut. She knew nothing about me. Obviously, David had sent a message somehow. In Africa, things happen mysteriously. You never really know, you know, how things happen. But David had got a message to her that we were coming on this particular day. And she invited us into her home. And it was just a single, there were two rooms, I think. There was a, one large room. And then there was a door towards another room, which I presume was a bedroom and a come kitchen. And she told us to sit down on the floor. There was no furniture, but there was a grass mat on the floor. And on the, uh, around us, there were little shelves with bottles and little canisters and calabashes and little containers holding twigs and barks and skins and weird things that I couldn't even begin to identify. Mm. It was very shadowy and very dark and very cool inside her, this, this, this room. And I instantly recognized the grass mat. I thought, ah, she is doing what I saw as a child. She must be using bones. I don't know. Let's let's see how this turns out. What's going to happen? 
she didn't speak any English, as I said, and she threw the bones and she just began to babble nonstop, saying things like an express train. And David was doing his best to keep pace with her, to try to translate for me what she was saying. I was desperately trying to make some notes, but most of them were written in my mind rather than on my notepad. She said to me, the first thing she said was after she threw the bones, and what are the bones? Let me just talk about the bones for a moment. Yeah. They, they were wild animal bones, uh, a hyena bone. That, it, most of these diviners, healers, um, uh, shamans in the African tradition use a variety of wild animal bones. There's always a hyena there, a crocodile bone, there's a, a lion, uh, plus one from a goat, and a few other things which I don't really recall, plus a few pebbles and stones and other trinkets that each one uses um, according to their needs or how they uh, um, how they connect with the ancestral spirits, you know, like a charm or a, or a little piece of a, of a broken piece of porcelain or something like that. This was their kit. And she threw the bones. And the first thing she did was she pulled back uh, like this and she said, oh, I can't see anything. And David, you know, David was concerned about her. And, and she said, these lights, I cannot see through these lights. And she asked David a question. And David said to me, she wants to know what the lights are. And I suddenly thought, the lights? What is she talking about? And then it hit me. Ah, she has seen the television station in a studio. You have lights. And when I heard that, I thought, this woman isn't lying to me. Whatever it is that she's going to say, I better pay attention. Because when she said she can't see anything through, because of the bright lights in her face, I kind of knew immediately that she was seeing where I had come from. I was, you know, working in this television station. And then she started to talk about all sorts of extraordinary things. She made predictions about my life. She didn't tell me exactly what to do, which is what I was hoping she would tell me. But she started foretelling the future. She told David things like, he will one day cross the big water. Now, Zambia is a landlocked country. The only thing, the only real piece of good uh, body of water running through it is the Zambezi River. Um, she'd never seen the ocean, this woman. But she said, one day I will cross the big water. And I will go in that direction. And she points to the north. He will go there and there will be more lights. And he will work with those lights. And he, there will be people there who will be very famous and he will work in that place. Now, I, did, I had no idea what she was referring to. Later on, as all of these things came to pass, I did realize what she was talking about. But at the time, I had no idea. Another thing she said to David was, one day he will go to a, to a place, a world, where there is no color. There is no color in this world at all. No, it is only white. The whole world is white. He will go there and he will see only white, white things. There was, there's not, no other colors at all. And she was, she, she, she obviously didn't really understand what she was seeing in the bones, but she was trying to describe what it is that she was seeing. There must have been some sort of visual uh, um, element going on there that she was um, looking at. And she said to David also, she said, he must be very, very careful. He will go again on the big water, but the big water one day will try to kill him. He must be very, very careful. Another thing she said was, one day he's going to be in the, in, in the bush and a big beast will threaten his life. He must be very careful of that day. 
I had no idea what she meant. Another thing she said to him was, he will one day meet a man. And she held up her two fingers like this. Put up her forefinger and her middle finger like, uh, together and held them very close to one another. And she said they, he, he, he will meet a man who was very, very close to the most evil man who has ever lived in the world. And, you know, these are the sort of things she was saying to David. Now, I had no idea what any of these predictions meant at all. But I made a mental note and I made rough notes on a piece of paper. And David it kept coming just endlessly. Um, and what was so amazing is that for the next 60 years of my life, I'm now in my late 70s, um, everything that she predicted in these terms that I did not understand all came to pass. It was amazing. And I will give you an example of the very first thing was after I was fired from the station, I thought, well, what am I going to do? The only thing I could really do was to go back to South Africa as much as I didn't want to, but to go back to South Africa and, and work in the film industry. And South Africa had a, a fairly good film industry. It was alive and well. And, um, and, you know, I was still a South African citizen. And so I had no trouble going back to South Africa, finding a job in the film industry. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years. It was it was wonderfully uh, pioneering times. We did all sorts of interesting um, um, films. Uh, I worked on a television series for Germany. I worked on a lot of commercials and so on. But it was enough. I, it was time for me to leave. It was time for my dream to come true. I now wanted to go to Hollywood and work in Hollywood. I wanted to go and make big movies. And the only way to do that was, I thought, was because the, the American embassy was not dishing out visas at that time to white South Africans because of their anti-apartheid policies. But so the nearest thing I could do was to actually emigrate to Canada. And I thought, that's far enough. That's close enough to America. I'll go there. And the Canadians were absolutely wonderful. They were marvelous. It didn't take long. I applied the Canadian embassy in Pretoria for a visa. The visa arrived in no time. And before I knew it, I had bought a ticket on board a ship uh, to sail to Southampton. And from Southampton, I was going to go to Canada and start my life anew in the Northern Hemisphere and begin my career, hopefully, in the film industry in North America. And one night I was standing uh, on board the, the deck of the ship. The ship was the S.A. Val, a wonderful ship that was part of the SAF Marine uh, line, which was attached to the Union Castle line. Now, Union, the Union Castle line was the, was the Royal Mail steamer line that brought the mail from the UK to South Africa. Every week, the mail would arrive from the UK on a Union Castle liner, and they would go back. The holes would be full of fresh fruit and vegetables and all the produce of South Africa back, back to England. And it was a weekly, utterly reliable, wonderful service. And eventually, the company split into two. Half of it was called SAF Marine, South African Marine Corporation. The other half was Union Castle. And their newest ship was the, was the SA Val. I got a ticket on the SA Val and I sailed for Southampton. Uh, I was going to be met by a dear friend who I'd worked with in the in a movie studio in Johannesburg, who was my mentor, basically, and his name was Ian Wilson. And I'm grateful to Ian for all time for having been such an amazing mentor, guide, uh, and friend to me in my early years in my career in the film industry. And he said, you take, you, 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 I will meet you after you get to Southampton, you take the boat train and I'll meet you at, I don't remember which station it was, I think it was Paddington. 
the boat train used to go from Southampton, I think, to Paddington Station, and 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 I knew Ian would be on the other side uh, to meet me, and I would be in London for about a week before I carried on my journey to to Canada. And one night I was standing on the ship looking up at the sky. I used to look to the rear of the ship, to the stern, because every night you would see the Southern Cross in the sky. And every night the Southern Cross would get lower and lower and lower and lower and lower until it eventually started edging beneath the horizon. And I suddenly was aware of the fact that, my goodness, I'm actually sailing across the planet. I'm crossing, we'd cross the equator, we'd I'm going into the northern hemisphere, and as I as this as I was aware of this this one particular evening, I suddenly remembered what this old woman, this this shaman, had told me. She said, "You will cross the great water, and you will go in that direction to the north." And I said, "That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm sailing to the northern hemisphere on the Atlantic Ocean." How did she foresee this? Anyway, to cut a very long story short, that was the first time that I realized that some of the things that, that what this, this woman had told me w- was coming true. Now, some of the other predictions that, that she made, I have to jump around a little bit because they all did, did come true. And, you know, when she said to me, oh, yes, I will find work in a place where there are more lights. Well, I did. I got a job at the National Film Board of Canada. I eventually managed to get to the States. I came, I worked in Hollywood for a while, uh, but my my father be- became ill and I eventually had to go back to Africa. And being an only child, I needed to make sure my mother was okay. And I eventually ended up back in South Africa in the film industry. And I, for one reason or another, I stayed there, eventually got married there. Um, but things slowly unfolded. Now, one of the other events that this old lady had told me about was this great beast that would almost kill me in the, in the, in, in the bush. And uh, one of the projects that I worked on uh, in South Africa, I got a telephone call one day from a Swedish producer, and he was contacted by a company here in Los Angeles. Uh, they, the, there was a, a, a white guy who owned a very large toy company here in Los Angeles who was going to go on safari to South Africa, to Mozambique. Now, Mozambique at that time was uh, a Portuguese province, actually, not even a colony. It was a, a province of Portugal in Africa, right on the border of South Africa, on the eastern border of South Africa. Wild and wonderful country, amazing place pretty undeveloped other than two major cities. One was called Lorenzo Marx. Today it's called uh, Maputo. And then there was a town up in the north called Baira. I remember Mozambique extremely well from my studies of African history, of course. And, you know, uh, uh, David Livingston, who was a hero of mine, uh, wrote about Mozambique extensively in his journals. Um, so I thought this is a great opportunity. I'm I'm going to take this job because of this guy from who owned this toy company, who was going to Mozambique on a safari, and he needed a cameraman to photograph uh, his safari. And he was going there with two of his friends. So there were two reasons why I took the job. Number one is I thought great opportunity to go and explore Mozambique. I think it was a six week assignment. And the other thing was I never quite understood what the thrill was in that people got out of killing wild animals. It made no sense to me whatsoever. I wanted to understand where people got their kicks out of killing wild animals. What was that all about? And the only way to do that was to go on a safari. And this was a very well-funded safari indeed with two big white hunters and these three wealthy American guys, you know, with, uh, you know, porters carrying ice and, 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 and uh, martinis through the boondocks. Um, 
and shooting wild animals for fun. And I thought, well, I've got to go and find out what this is all about. So I took the job and went to uh, Mozambique. And the, 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 the guy, his name was Spud Mellon, who owned the toy company, a very, very, very successful toy company that had made its fortune out of marketing in the 50s, the hula hoop. The hula hoop was ah. a craze that took the world by storm. And Spud had exploited this uh, opportunity of the hula hoop. I think he, he actually got the idea uh, after having seen children doing it, either in Australia or in some um, Polynesian island. But anyway, he developed it and sold it throughout the world. Everybody had a hula hoop. Even I did as a child. And, uh, and the, the other thing that the company was very famous for was for the Frisbee that it had marketed big time throughout the world. Again, based on some uh, uh, tribal... Um, um, uh, item that that Spud had seen on one of his travels, and he had marketed it very successfully. Manufactured them, manufactured them out of plastic, and you know made them very lightweight, and you would play frisbees. Well, today we still you know play with a frisbee on on the beach. People still use it. Spud was a very very wealthy individual, and uh, these two buddies who were with him, one was a stockbroker, one was an account a, a, a lawyer, and I met them in Byra. And uh, we go into the hunting concession in the middle of Mozambique. And every one of these guys, you know, were itching to shoot wild animals. And, you know, uh, they had a license to shoot two lions, you know, a rhino, three buffaloes, four wildebeest, you know, two zebra. And they all had licenses to shoot at one elephant each as well. Now, the mere thought of that absolutely appalled me. I mean, I couldn't even begin to tell you. Um, and the bloodshed and the violence and the horrors of witnessing this safari playing out in front of me with these guys with their 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 high-powered rifles and their telescopic sights, just shooting the for fun, you know, was horrific. But you know, I was assigned to cover it on film, which is what I did. And those were long before the days of video. Everything was shot on film. The camera was heavy. Uh, the power you got was from a huge, heavy wet cell battery and you know so i had one of the assistants from the from the camp at this camping um at this at this hunting reserve would be my battery carrier and i would carry the camera and film these guys carrying out their carnage um and at night we used to go back to camp and you know drink lots of martinis and whatever and i used to talk to them i used to argue i said guys i don't understand what it is what fun you get out of this you know and they all shot me down you know people have been doing this for millions of years and you know it's 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 uh it's it's in it's in our blood that's what guys do you know so you know stop being such a softy um we never really had an argument but i did really try and discuss it with them but to no avail and it, nevertheless it came a day where we were tracking a herd of elephants and one of the three hunters, the, one of the three Americans, it was he to shoot elephant. And so the white hunters had picked out from a herd an old bull that was standing to the side of the herd. He had obviously at one point been perhaps the leader of the pack. I don't know, but he was he was obviously old. I, I would imagine at 30 or 40 years old he could have been. And so the white hunter said to uh, the American, he said, that's, that's the elephant that you've got to shoot. You, we, we'll, we'll track this herd until we find an opportunity for you to, to shoot him. But the herd kept moving and, and away from us. They kept moving. They, they got a whiff of us, so they moved. So we had to leave our vehicles and track them on foot. And by nightfall, 
we were still doing this. We were now miles away from our vehicles, and we had to stay in the middle of the bush that night. No sleeping bags, no food, nothing at all. Uh, and the white hunter said, look, guys, we'll just bed down here in the grass under the trees, and tomorrow we'll keep tracking the herd. They won't be far away. Well, in the middle of the night, the main white uh, leader of, of, of the group, the, the white hunter, he said, don't say a word. Don't speak. The herd is around us. They've encircled us. And I could hear my heart pounding. Everybody was absolutely petrified. We were surrounded by this herd of elephants. And you could hear the rumble of their hearts. You could hear the sort of swishing of their ears as they slowly, you know, uh, the elephants' ears are their radiators, cools the blood. You could hear that, but you couldn't see anything. There was, there was no moon. It was an absolutely dense black night. And when the dawn came, the herd had moved away. And the white hunter, Wally was his name, he said, you know, those guys could have killed us last night. They could have trampled us to death, and they didn't. I think they came to warn us, almost requesting us to leave them alone. But the three America, the, 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 the hunter whose turn it was to shoot the elephant wouldn't, wouldn't have any of it. He said, no, I, we got to find them. I got to shoot my elephant today. Um, and I found that really, really sad because those elephants could have harmed us and they didn't. Mm. And eventually we did find the herd and uh, the white hunter picked out the bull again. He said, that's the guy you've got to shoot. So eventually I'm cutting uh, lots of details out of this. I positioned myself behind the, 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 the guy whose turn it was to, to shoot so that I would over shoulder shot. He was in front of me, the herd in the background, you know, still in all of it in my frame. And when he shot, you know, the, 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 the scene would be him in the foreground and in the background would be the elephant dropping. That was the idea which is why I found I put myself in that position. And uh, behind me was the white hunter who was, uh, you know, uh, uh, keeping track of what we were doing and who, you know, was in charge of it. Or, and he, the, the, he fired. I'm not going to mention his name. He fired, but he missed. And it, the herd panicked. And as the herd began to dissipate, there in the middle was a single uh, female, a cow, with a baby, a little baby elephant. And when this happened, she knew that her baby was in trouble. Her baby was threatened. And she saw the hunter standing in front of me with his rifle. And she began to charge him, running towards him as she was intent on killing him. And I was right behind him with my camera, this heavy camera. The guy behind me was holding the battery and behind him, the white hunter. And I, I, and I was filming this. But it didn't take long before the guy in front of me ran out of shot because this elephant was, was running for him, was going to kill him. I was stuck in place. First of all, I was frozen and I was, I was carrying this heavy camera. I couldn't move. And all that was happening in my viewfinder was this elephant was getting larger and larger and larger in frame. The, the ground was thundering and rumbling like an earthquake. And the next thing I hear a shot from behind me, and it was the, 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 the big white hunter who shot her right between the eyes in her forehead and she must have dropped dead uh, not quite dead but she, she was shot about six or seven feet in front of me and she fell onto her knees her eyes glazed over and she fell onto her side and she died and i was running i had film of capturing all of this it was one of the most moving experiences i have ever had but she could have killed me she could have trampled me to death with no trouble whatsoever and it was only that night back at camp 
the booze was pouring, you know, everybody was having a wonderful time discussing the events of the day. And it suddenly hit me that that's what that old lady had foreseen. She foresaw this event. The great beast, you will be in the bush and the great beast, be very careful. It might kill you. She had foreseen this decades before it happened. And I began to think very, very carefully about what is it that what gave her the power to be able to do this? How could she foresee the future the way she had? She couldn't uh, um, exactly identify the event, but she had seen it. She had seen something happening and she had foretold it. What was it? And it began to expand my vision and my thinking that there's more to the world than we know. And there's more to life than we know. And there are more realms and possibilities out there than we can possibly begin to guess at. Certainly in our Western system, we live in a very, very narrow, tightly constrained world. We've got to expand our vision and our thinking and our perception of things. And I began to think along those lines because other events began to happen, which also came true when I thought back about what this woman had said. Um, and in the, in the 1970s, I, uh, television had arrived in South Africa in the early 70s, around 1976, I think it was. Um, and so in 1974, I was given the task of, of uh, I was given the option of, of doing a series on the various tribes of South Africa. You know, what the network wanted, and the network was state-owned. What they wanted was, you know, more more Africans in grass skirts and rattles, beating drums, doing cute, quaint things for white viewers. But I wanted to break that. I wanted to go beyond that barrier. Here was the opportunity to introduce white audiences to their black neighbors and tell them who their black neighbors really were. These were people with histories. These were people with cultures. These were people uh, who had more to offer than just being slaves and servants. And so I uh, worked with an anthropologist whose name was Peter Becker. And I said to Peter, I said, Peter, we're not going to hold anything back. We are going to give these people, these the, the tribes, the dignity they deserve. And we've got to tell the white audience how much history these people have, how much extraordinary culture they have, and what they have to offer us that we don't know anything about. Here is our opportunity to do that. So during the course of the making of those shows called The Tribal Identity, I got to know many, many uh, of the uh, uh, tribal people extremely well. And I did rituals, uh, you know, um, uh, ceremonies for the initiation from youth to adulthood for males and females in all sorts of extraordinary rituals with various tribal groups from uh, the Kozas in the East Coast to the Vendas right up in the northern part of the country to the Zulus, the Sutus the um all, all of them the twanas uh the shaunas and it was an extraordinary and an amazing experience because i met a lot of shamans they go by the name of sangoma by the way they don't call themselves shamans in south africa the healers the diviners uh, those people who dispel who who who, who um who, um, uh, um you know produce uh, me medicines made out of box and herbs and whatever else from the natural world they go by the name of, of Sangomas, and I got to know a lot of Sangomas during the making of that series. And it gave me an, an incredibly deep insight into their world and a, and, and a respect for these people that no one had 
the opportunity of ever having access to prior to this, because apartheid never made it possible. There was a line between black and white that made that kind of relationship impossible. But during the making of the series with the anthropologist Peter Becker, who also felt was deeply respectful of the various tribal groups, I learned a lot about those people. And I met a lot of these amazing Sangomas, and I saw extraordinary things. I saw people being exorcised of, of, of uh, they were possessed, supposedly possessed by bad spirits. I saw people being healed. I saw, you know, people being told where they had lost, um, they had lost possessions and, you know, where they would find it again. It was amazing because the Sangoma, by connecting with the ancestors, is not ab only able to uh, um, find the cure for an illness, but is also able to see into the future and do all sorts of things by connecting with the patient's ancestors and the spiritual realm and the higher levels, um, which we in the West, uh, maybe we once had that, but we certainly don't have access to it now. It's it, We've lost that, and yet those people do have that capability. It was an amazing experience to be exposed to all of that point. When this poor creature died in front of me, she held me in her, she, her eyes were beginning to glaze over, but she held me and she was, she, her eyes were completely locked with mine as they slowly glazed over, as she slowly, as the life ebbed out of her. And our, our, her vision and mine were locked together and I felt a connection with her as she slowly died in front of me after this bullet wound. Um, the shot was right between the eyes and she, it took about maybe 10 minutes for her to, to die. But I felt that she and I were connected as she was slowly dying in front of me. And my camera was whirring and I thought, my God, this animal is connecting with me. There's some, there's some aspect of her that is connecting with some aspect of me. I wasn't sure what it was. And I certainly wasn't going to tell anybody about it that night because I would have thought I was a raving lunatic and they would have thought I was crazy. But many, many times in later years, a long, long time later, when I went back to South Africa um, and, and Sangoma threw bones for me, they always said, always, the first thing they always said to me, what is this elephant spirit we see in your bones? Mm. It's as though she has accompanied me on my life's journey since the moment since the moment she died. She was, she's been with me, and I still feel that today, she's around me. She's with me. She's part of me, and she's almost her. Her spirit, in some way or another, is is protecting me on some level or another. And I know she's still around. I, I sense her. If you could see my office, my study, there are elephants everywhere. There's an elephant hanging from my rear view mirror in my car. There has to be elephants in my life wherever I go, because this elephant spirit has been with me ever since that day in 1967. Um, so now let's move on a bit and, and, and um, jump ahead and come to the United States. I moved to the, to, to the United States in the 80s. Uh, apartheid was still at its height in South Africa. P.W. Boerter was the president of the country at the time. He was absolutely insistent on maintaining apartheid and not uh, dismantling it. Uh, and I, I said to my wife at the time, we, we, we've got to leave the country. We can't live under these circumstances anymore. It's time to go to the States. And um, I did manage to get a visa this time to come and not to emigrate, but to set up a company in Los Angeles, which is how I managed to get the visa system going. And then the company here would employ me and that's how we could get over here and then after a while we could convert that to a, a, what essentially became a green card 
and and get our residency in America. And that's how we did it, because America was, at that time was still very, very anti-apartheid. There were all sorts of rules and regulations in place. In fact, they were even banning flights at that point between South Africa and the United States. Um, and that was during Reagan's era. But anyway, we came over here and I got a uh, got a job with with PBS, the broad, public broadcasting system. Um, I had a showreel and I, you know, um, was fortunate enough to 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 become part of a major science series called The Infinite Voyage, which I wrote and directed and photographed some of them as well. Uh, and one of the shows I did uh, was called Secrets from a Frozen World. And what it, what was it all what it was all about was essentially looking at Antarctica and how Antarctica is a barometer of, of, of global change. If you go down there and you want to take the temperature of planet Earth and find out if she's well or not, you go to Antarctica because it is relatively pristine. There aren't any human settlements. There are no roads and airports and cities and freeways. But are all things well? If you go down there and take ice cores, can you find a difference in the, in the bubbles trapped in ice today compared to bubbles trapped in the ice from centuries ago, you can compare them because is carbon dioxide really going up in the atmosphere? What do the sediment layers of Antarctica tell us about the planet's past? And if we take sediment layers uh, higher up, you know, almost at the, at, the, uh, at the exact bottom of the sea without going too deep, is there a change? Do you find more acidity? And of course, it was the, the, the years of the ozone hole that had just been discovered. Is the ozone hole real and how serious is it? That was what the trip was all about. And one of the ways of finding out whether the oceans were becoming more acidic and whether climate change was happening and whether uh, the temperatures were going up was to look at the wildlife, to look at the biomass, to look at the, at the ecosystems. And there's a lot of wildlife in, in, in Antarctica. And one of, one of the most revealing things is to look at the, the krill population, because the population of krill down there is absolutely enormous. And you can examine them and their environment and see if they're healthy or not, because if they're not, something is wrong with the ocean. And so just to cut again, a long story short, I was on a research vessel going out into the ice pack, the, the oceans were completely covered in ice. You know, we would ride up on the ice and the, the icebreaker would crack the ice and huge walls of ice on either side would come crashing down and we'd make our way forward. And it was uh, a Christmas um, 1990 that um, this particular moment happened. I was up on the deck. They, the captain had stopped the ship. Now, you don't stop in the middle of an ice pack in, in, uh, of, 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 of an ocean covered with ice because you could get frozen. So the propellers are always turning, but you feather them in such a way so that there, there's no forward or, or rearward movement. So the propellers are still turning so that you don't get stuck, um, but the ship isn't moving. And they decided to stop the ship in order to celebrate Christmas. And of course, it's, it's the Southern Hemisphere. And the Southern Hemisphere in December, there's no night. It's perpetual daylight. There's like a, maybe an hour of twilight time. So during that twilight time, uh, you know, I went up on deck. Uh, the ship had a red hull and uh, white superstructure. And I, I sat there writing in my journal. I kept a journal every single day. And a little penguin came along and 
walked around the ship and you know i was watching this little this little animal and i thought god you know i'm in another universe here this is this is incredible and yet that animal survives here how does it do that and i looked around me and i thought this is entirely a white world how does it how does that animal survive and then i thought back to what that old woman had told me in her hut she said you will one day go to a world where there is only white no color at all and I thought, that's where I am. She foresaw this as well. It was like being in a translucent white egg, if you like. The ocean was white. You couldn't see where the oceans and the sky met. Everything was, was, was the same color, pure white. And icebergs and the ice uh, crusting above on, on the ocean. And I thought, how did this woman see this? But she did. And that was another example where I suddenly realized, my goodness, you know, um, there is another world that we can tap into because this woman certainly did that in a little mud hut way back in Central Africa. She had foreseen this moment that I was experiencing in the middle of the Antarctic. I was living in a white world. She knew that. And again, it expanded my vision and expanded my thinking. And I thought there's more to the world and the universe than we are led to believe. And that came obvious in later events and uh you know the other thing she told me if i if you recall was that i will be uh, on the the big water and i will nearly die there well uh, some years prior to that i did another uh, ocean journey on a on a research ship in south africa where we were steaming westward and um it was a brand new research ship and there was an, an incredible storm at sea and we almost capsized. We, uh, this, 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 the ship nearly turned over. She had foreseen that as well. She even uh, foresaw all sorts of other little events. Uh, like, for example, I was once on a fishing trawler off the coast of Angola. I was doing a film for BP Oil on a fishing factory ship. And the only way to get back to land was to take a trawler and uh, just a crew of two of us, a sound man and me with my camera. And we got caught in a storm in this fishing trawler. Well, three other fishing boats went down in that storm. We, by some miracle, did not. There were waves 100 feet high. You know, it was unbelievable how we survived that. I've no idea. But again, the woman had foreseen that I will almost die in the big water. But perhaps one of the most amazing things that this uh, lady had foreseen was this evil man, I will meet a man who was very, very close to the most evil man who ever lived. And I'm going to fast forward now to, uh, well, no, I'm going to backtrack again. I'm going to go to the year 1983. I was doing a series of films on the history of South African airways. They were celebrating their 50th anniversary. And I was doing a series of television shows about that as well as a film for the airline to show on board to celebrate their 50th anniversary. It was a very, very fine airline. They uh, uh, pioneered routes to all the continents of the earth um, from Johannesburg. Even though apartheid was in place, the airline religiously carried on its duties, flying backwards and forwards, passengers and freight, very good safety record, wonderful airline. And I was very privileged to, to be making this film. And during the course of our research for that particular um, series of documentaries, um, I learned that the airline began in 1929 it was a private company and in eventually it ran out of money and the state, the, co the government took it over and renamed it South African Airways. 
1934, they ordered three brand new aircraft from a, an aircraft manufacturer in Germany. I think the company was was in uh, uh, was based in Bremen, but I'm not not I can't quite recollect. And so you can imagine, how do you deliver three uh, airline aircraft? They they was they, they were small, three engines, one engine in the nose and one an, an engine on either wing. Junkers Junkers Ju fifty two for anybody who knows anything about early aviation. How do you fly? three of those aircraft all the way down Africa, darkest Africa still was those days, from Germany to Johannesburg. There were no radio stations. There were no proper weather forecasting facilities. There were no alternative airports to land at. There were very few aerodromes to land at, let alone how do you refuel the aircraft on the way. So it was a huge adventure to deliver these aircraft from Germany to South Africa. And yet it was done. And one of the pilots um, I learned was still alive. And this is 1983. This man was still alive. He was in his late 80s. And we learned that he was retired, of course, at that age. And I found out that um, uh, he was living in a small village near Munich in a place called Amashi in, in Bavaria. And I thought, we've got to put this guy in, 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 in the film. We've got to interview him and, you know, interview him about this amazing flight down Africa. But not only that, we also learned that he had, he was, he was also a movie um, um, enthusiast and he shot a home movie of the delivery flight, you know, of tribal people pumping, uh, pouring tins of paraffin into the wings, chasing hippos away from these grass airfields was extraordinary stuff. I mean, it's the stuff of make-believe, you know, straight out of Indiana Jones. Uh, and I thought, wow, um, this is amazing. I've got to find the film and we've got to interview the guy. Well, eventually my crew and I, we arrive in Germany uh, and we're filming in Frankfurt at the head office of South African Airways in Frankfurt. And I'm told that uh, it was scheduled for me to go and interview this man on a particular day and that we would drive down on the autobahn, the German autobahns are amazing. No speed limit, you know, Frankfurt to Munich, you can do it, uh, you know, drive 100 miles an hour um, and get there in a few hours. And that, not only that, but that the film was located by the foreign office, uh, the German foreign office in a lab in Frankfurt and that I could choose and select some scenes from it to use in the documentary. So it was very, very exciting. Here I am going to meet a man who flew a delivery flight down Africa in the 30s, and not only that, but I was going to have access to his footage. And the footage was pretty good, by the way. It was kept in this lab in, 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 in Frankfurt, and we made our selections. And then came the time for us to go down to Munich to interview him. And we had a representative from the foreign office. Now, at that time, Western Germany and East Germany were still separated. The Berlin Wall had not yet come down. They were still separate uh, countries. And um, the, 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 uh, the government, the German government, the Western German government was based in Bonn at the time, not Berlin. And so we had what, 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 what the, uh, the, the staff at the South African Airways office called was the man from Bonn. There's a man from Bonn who's coming and he will accompany you to go and visit Hans Bar, which is the name of the pilot, 
and uh, he will be your interpreter because this man speaks no, the bar, the pilot speaks no English, and he will help you. And I thought, well, that's very kind and very nice of the German government because not only are they uh, sending a representative to help me interview the guy, but it's like, you know, welcoming us because he obviously he must be some sort of a hero of some sort. Terrific. And it was, uh, you know, quite, uh, um, I, I felt honored that he was joining us. Anyway, two, two vehicles. Down we go along the Autobahn from Frankfurt down to Munich. And the night before we do the interview with this man, uh, we're staying at a little hotel and uh, we're drinking some very good German wine and uh, other schnapps. And the man from Bonn spoke perfect English. He says to me, uh, you, you know, how much do you really know about, about Kapitän Bauer? pilot of the aircraft. I said, well, you know, I knew that he did the flight and, and so on. He said, yeah, but do you know anything about his record? And I said, well, no, really, why, what are you, what are you implying? And, uh, and he said, well, you can imagine the flight that you're talking about was 1934. And, uh, obviously this man was served during the war. Um, I said, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, he must've flown for the Luftwaffe. So the, the guy from Bonn says, I want to ask you, Mr. Friedberg, please do not ask him any questions about the war at all. We do not want to go there. We don't even want to discuss that. So I thought, fine, that's fair enough. Um, he doesn't want to discuss the war. And the, the man from Bonn said uh, he has a war injury and he was also a prisoner of war of the, of the Russians. So he does not want to speak about the war, but uh, we, don't, we don't want to bring all that up anyway. I said, fine, uh, you know, I don't mind. That's absolutely fine by me. We have some more wine. And as the evening wore on till about one o'clock in the morning, the man from Bonn says to me again, and we're all a little tipsy now, and he says, but how much do you really know about Hans Bauer? And I said, well, what else is there to know? And he says to me, he leans over to me and he says, do you know that he was Adolf Hitler's personal pilot? Wow. Well, you can, you can imagine what that did. I was instantly sober and I thought, wow, how am I going to handle that one? I've interviewed a lot of people in my life, but to interview somebody who was Adolf Hitler's personal pilot, that's something else. Um, how am I going to deal with that one? Anyway, the next morning, we go to this man's house and we, we are welcomed by his, it was his third wife. Um, she welcomed us at the door. The picture book house, hollyhocks growing outside, you know, um, all very pretty and uh, beautifully manicured lawns. And we go inside the house and down the steps comes Kapitan Bauer. And obviously he did have a war injury because he was using a stick. So he had a gummy leg. So I thought, well, you know, that must have been the injury that the man was referring to. Uh, we meet. The minute I shook his hand, it suddenly hit me. How many times has that hand that I'm shaking now, how many times did that hand shake the hand of Adolf Hitler? Right. Perhaps one of the most large, biggest mass murderer tyrants in history. I'm just no more than a handshake away from him. It sort of was an uncanny feeling to have. Nevertheless, we sat down. We conduct the interview. We talk about the delivery flight. He gives a beautiful interview, about 10 or 15 minutes. I was going to get about eight minutes out of it to use in the film. And at the end of the interview, you know, I thanked him very much. And he claps his hands and he calls his wife to bring some drinks around. So the rest of the crew are wrapping up the lights and wrapping up the sound equipment and everything. And he comes up to me and I speak a little bit of German because of my... Uh, I, I, I could speak Afrikaans, which we had to learn at school. 
So Dutch and German are not in entirely foreign languages to me. I can speak a little bit of it. And um, uh, he, he takes me, he says, come and meet me, come with me. And uh, we go around the, this corner of the living room in his little house and he points to a picture. And on the, on the wall, there's a photograph of him with Adolf Hitler in front of one of the JU-52s, exactly the same sort of aircraft that he delivered to South Africa as an airliner back in the 30s. And he said, that's me, and that is Adolf Hitler, and uh, this is the JU, that is like the JU-52 that I was talking about. Well, I was more intrigued about the other man in the photograph and not so much in the aircraft. And he says, yeah, das is Adolf Hitler. And uh, he says to me, would you like to know uh, uh, the story of of, 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 of this man and me. And I said, yeah. And he invites me to sit down next to him on a, on this little couch in his, in his living room. And, um, he asks his wife to bring his photograph albums out, which he does four or five beautifully leather bound albums. And in these albums is an, is the, a, a, a pictorial history of the inner ranks of the third Reich. And he is in many of these images, Hans Bauer, always nearby Hitler, always somewhere in the background, pictures of Hitler and Mussolini at a state dinner in Rome or in Berlin. And always in the background was Hans Bauer. And he says to me that Hitler was one of his closest friends. As he explained it to me, Hitler didn't trust anybody. The only person that he ever trusted was him, the pilot. He loathed, he was always very fearful of flying, he tells me about Hitler. But when he was at the controls of the aircraft, Hitler felt safe and Hitler confided in him in many of the things that he couldn't tell any of his other uh, cronies because he didn't trust anybody. He even told me that, you know, when he got married to his first wife, Hitler gave him his wedding party in Hitler's personal apartment in Munich. Yeah, That's how close they were. And he tells me all of this um, as I'm sitting next to him drinking wonderful Kirschwasser and schnapps in these little house in Munich, in, in, in this little village in Bavaria. And I thought, this is surreal. I don't believe that this is really happening, but it is. And one photograph after the other, you know, it was a revelation uh, of, the inner, of the inner sanctum of the Third Reich. I, the pictures of him at Berchtesgaden with Eva Braun and Adolf Hitler. Um, I didn't feel any animosity towards the man. I, as far as I was concerned, he was a pilot. And I was seeing him for historical reasons. But obviously, he was very, very close to this man who that woman had told me was the, you know, the, one of the most evil men who ever lived. But it didn't hit me at that quite at that point. But at the end of the day, uh, we said our goodbyes and we drove away. And I looked back and there he was standing outside his house, with his walking stick and his wife waving goodbye to us just a little old couple waving goodbye to their guests and it suddenly hit me like a ton of bricks that's what this woman foresaw i will meet the man who was close to the most evil man who ever lived again she knew this and it it, it only dawned on me as we were driving away you know um as those as when you experience things like that, um, what does it do to you? It 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 really it it it, it it's life altering. And I have been very very lucky. I'm I, I've probably been, and I don't mean to say this in any arrogant boastful way at all. Believe me, I don't mean this at all. I just think I've been extraordinarily lucky, and very very blessed to have experienced the things I have because I've made films 
about amazing topics and met amazing people. One of the most marvelous films I ever made was the story of the Voyager spacecraft, by the way, that went uh, to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. I met all the engineers. I met all the scientists involved in the mission. It was a privilege to be able to do things like that. I've made films for uh, television networks and cable companies here on investigations into what happens after you die. Does the consciousness survive the human the demise of the physical body. Um, I've interviewed people who've had near-death experiences. I've done films on social issues, on political issues, on science, all kinds of things. I've had an amazing life. And what this has done for me, it's broadened my vision and humbled me to the degree that I, I cannot tell you how respectful I am, first of all, uh, f for the good fortune that, that, that I've had in my life. But it's given me a healthy respect also for my fellow, not only my fellow human beings, but for life in general and for the miracle of life on this planet. I worked on another series for National Geographic where I was based in Monterey up in central California on the Monterey Bay for, for a year doing a series of films on how nature devises body plans. In other words, the phyla in the animal kingdom called the shape of life and there again you probe into the micro world you probe into the world of dna you probe into the world of life and how nature structures things and how patterns why is a worm a worm why does a butterfly develop the way it does why do mammals have skeletons you know i have gone into places that most people you know um do not have access to, and I feel extraordinarily blessed to have been able to have this. And I know now, after having made films for the last 50, 55 years, you know, that there's more to the universe than we know. And the, I end my book, um, the, the book Forever in My Veins, the title reverse, refers to the fact that the essence of Africa, the mystique, the mysteries, the the wonders of the African continent. I am a I am a child of Africa. I'm a I'm a I'm a white Caucasian born in born in Africa. I think of myself as 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 a child of Africa. I grew up there, and the spirit of Africa is still very much in my in my blood. It's in my veins. It defined me. It make it made me who I am. And learning more about my black neighbors and about the mysteries of the tribes and what they believed in and their cultures has given me a profound respect for the continent. Um, so that's where the forever in my veins comes from. But it's also given me a profound respect for, for life in general and all the adventures I've had. You know, I've flown at three times the speed of sound in a jet fighter um, in a mock war. I have been in submarines. I've done all kinds of extraordinary things. And who gets to do that kind of stuff? And I look back and I think, how come you had the opportunity to do all these things? And I just feel very, very humbled by it. And, you know, we are living in very dark times at the moment. We're living in very troubling times. And uh, there's a lot of really bad stuff going on at the moment. We're dealing with a pandemic that has seized the world and brought the world to its knees. We have political systems gone horribly wrong. If you look now what's going on in the United States, we're doing this, this interview uh, in, in early January 2021. When you think back what happened last week in, in Washington with the storming of the Capitol building, 
um, there's just a lot of very, very dark things happening at the moment, which are very, very troubling. And it can make one very, very depressed very, very easily. Um, and when I think back on the show that I did about life after death yeah. and the uh, scientists that I met at Princeton University and scientists who work at a place called the Monroe Institute in Virginia who investigate the stuff, you know, I know that the body, the demise of the body is not the end of who you are. There's much more to it than that. And after having been exposed to all of these incredible things, I end the book by saying, you know, we're all connected. There is an invisible grid somewhere out there. And that grid connects us all. Whether you're a pony or a person or a petunia, it doesn't matter. We are all connected to some sort of amazing grid that exists on a cosmic scale. And I know this to be so. I have no doubt about that. You know, um, particularly after having interviewed people who've had near-death experiences. And yeah. even my, myself, I have had uh, an experience after my father passed away. My father came to see me the night after he, he died. You know, life is not about your body and it's not who you are for now. We go on and on and life goes on. I know this to be a fact. And I, I want people to, to take a note of optimism, despite the fact that things are pretty tough at the moment and life is not easy. I don't think it can get more difficult. I mean, I can think how it must have been in the Blitz living in London uh, or, you know, I, but I've seen wars. I have witnessed the Congo in flames. I have seen apartheid at play. I have seen too much of the bad stuff myself, I, I, but it, it, it prevents it. I can't get depressed. You, one has to maintain a degree of optimism and a belief that there is more than what there is right now, that there is more to you than who you think you are. We are, we live, we live on, on, on a cosmic scale. We're all on a cosmic journey. We're all on an extraordinary, exciting journey. And this is just part of it. I've, I've interviewed many adults. I, I, I interviewed at least a dozen of them for this particular film. I, I did a two hour special for, for one of the networks, um, one of the cable companies called Beyond Death. Uh, but what's even more extraordinary, uh, not the adults that I, I interviewed, but the children that I spoke to. We, during the course of the making of that series, I, I found that there was a uh, pediatrician in Seattle who's, who had specialized in talking to children who had been revived from death, who were clinically dead and were revived. And he interviewed all of them and he asked them all to make drawings of their experiences, what they remembered about the time that they were what he called asleep, but actually when they were dead, they were physically dead. Their heart had stopped beating. They were clinically dead. And he said to them, just draw me what happened to you. And what was so amazing, because he introduced me to at least six or seven of these young children, they did not know each other, by the way. Um, he introduced me to their families and to the kids, and I was permitted to interview the kids. And they all described similar things, similar events, this tunnel, this tunnel of light going into this big white room. Some of the children said, you know, there were there were people in there. Other other kids said some of the other kids said they were angels in there. Another child said, oh, no, they were doctors and they had white coats on, but they all had light around their heads. And all of these children said that they were given the option of staying there or of going back to mommy and daddy, of going back, waking up and going back to mommy and daddy. And they said they were given options. One child said, 
somebody brought, they brought me this box and there was a green button or a red button and I could press the green button and I would go back. I would wake up and my mommy and daddy would be there. Another child said that he had to t press a, a, a lever. Another child said that there was a voice that said, go back. Your parents want you back home. Your parents want you to wake up. They want you to go back. They were all given the option to stay where they were or to go back into their bodies. Not that they understood that, not that they knew what was going on until afterwards when they, when they were, you know, uh, when, when, when it was clear that, that they were clinically dead. They were given the option to go back, but they all described similar things, this tunnel of light, this white room, these entities that were there. Uh, that was, for me, the most amazing thing because these kids couldn't make it up. And when they drew these pictures, the pictures were all very similar. And none of these kids knew each other. Uh, there were there, there were there were there were two young 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 uh, teenagers um, who died. One uh, was killed riding a uh, a bicycle uh, through a forest, and he was basically actually decapitated. But he went through a uh, a cable that had been strung between two trees. And then there was another um, young young guy, he say same age, who also died uh, from surgery. Now the two the two and I met up with both of these sets of parents. Um, because uh, 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 there was a there was a there was a, a psychic who put me in touch with these, these two these two groups of people, and both of these parents um, mourned their, 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 the loss of their children, of course. But here's the amazing thing: each of those of those mothers had a dream, and the dream was about the, uh, about a young man who died. And who was and who had made friends with the, the, this mother's son? So these two mothers were actually having dreams about their own sons, be having made friends in the spiritual realm with with these with with the the other the other mother's child, the other mother's son. Wow! And it was only after about a year or eighteen months that two and two was put together by the psychic individual, and he got the, the parents together. And the, the parents suddenly realized, my God, I've been dreaming about your dead son. You've been dreaming about my dead son. And our two dead sons have, be, have made friends in the spiritual realm. And they told us about it in our dreams. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. There was one young lady who was probably in her late 30s. Uh, she had a terrible brain aneurysm. And they had to uh, operate on her uh, in, in Atlanta. And the only way to do the surgery was to actually stop the blood from flowing briefly so that they could open her skull, get into her brain, uh, no blood loss, and, and remove the aneurysm, patch it all up, get the blood going again, get the heart going again, and revive her. So for some minutes, or I'm not sure exactly how long it was, but she was dead for uh, quite some time. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly how long it was. I don't recall. Um, but it, it was at least 10 or 10 or 15 minutes before they could start her heart going again and and and, and get the blood flowing again, uh, because obviously if you de deprive the brain of oxygen for too long, it's going to it's going to die. Um, but she was revived from her surgery. And the the, the, the surgeon uh, said to me afterwards, the most amazing thing was that after she was revived from her five or six hour operation, she said that she could remember it and he 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 could he didn't believe her at all. And he said, well, explain what you mean. And she said, well, after you put me to sleep, I floated up out of my body and I was up banging, uh, uh, you know, bouncing around the ceiling, looking down at you 
working on my surgery. I was watching you all the time. And he said, well, you know, that's all very well, sweetheart, but, you know, prove it to me. I mean, like, like, um, what proof do you have? And she said, well, what about that? That why did you scold the nurse when she dropped the instrument that you asked for? <laughs> he he actually uh, he asked for some instrument and she dropped it and he scolded. He said, "Don't do that again. Give me an." And she saw that and at, that was at, that was during the course that she was actually clinically dead. Not only that, but he uh, because the surgery was so long, this surgeon usually had a little tape deck going in the corner of the operating room, um, playing his favorite music, not very loud, just playing in the background. She could recall a lot of the songs and she said, I know what you were playing on your tape deck. You played this song and you played that song. And oh, I love that song. That's one of my favorite songs. He said, how do you know that? He said, she said, because I was listening to it while you were operating on me. As I was floating above the, uh, under the ceiling, I could hear the music, you know. So they, uh, and another guy was, was, was uh, died after a boulder fell on him when he was climbing a mountain. I recreated the entire sequence in the film. We, we had, a, you know, in Hollywood, you can get anything. There were fake rocks, whatever else. We actually killed the guy. We recreated the whole scene. He was taken to hospital. He was clinically dead. He was revived. He foresaw the surgery. Uh, he actually went to his, in, in, while he was being operated on, he f saw his parents sitting in the waiting room and he went there and he tried to, he said, I tried to speak to my parents. I tried to, to tell them, I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be alive. I'll be fine. Um, nobody believed that. But you know, he recalled all this afterwards. And uh, it's, there's just too much validation of the fact that life does not end. You know, it's not about the body. Consciousness is not tied to, to tissue or to synapses in the brain. It's more than that. So consciousness, spirit, call it whatever you will. You know, we are not just physical beings. No, 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 I agree. That's incredible. Everything from beginning to this point is just absolutely phenomenal. It's something we need right now. You are the epitome of adventure and hope and life and being a pioneer and courage. And that's exactly what we need right now. So I imagine not just a near-death experience documentary, but you've probably had a lot of strange supernatural and psychic phenomenon across many documentaries and projects you've worked on. I Indeed. Um, I'll give you another little example. Um, uh, I, they, they, I have a friend here who, um, who wanted to make a film about um, a particular man who was um, a member of, of an Indian tribe, and I think he was a member of the Navajo or the um, maybe maybe uh, the Hopi tribal group. She she wanted to make a film about them, and uh, and about this particular family. Uh, she's not she wasn't a filmmaker, but she she came to me one day and she said, look, look, I got this idea about this film. I don't want to make a film about this particular family. In this, in, they live on a reservation, and uh, you know, would you would you consider working on it with me? So I said, yeah, sure. And uh, who are these people? And she said, well, they are coming into town on a certain date, and. Um, we can meet them. So it was arranged that, that we would go and meet these folks. And um, she, 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 she rented a suite of offices in Santa Monica, which is here in LA, uh, for the day. And uh, this family arrived. And the old, uh, the, 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 the patriarch of the family was there, plus the matriarch of this family. And they were, I could see immediately that, they, that the, the, both of them were very, very psychically powerful people. I could see that instantly. And she said, you know, uh, 
one of the one of the reasons why they agreed to this meeting is because they wanted to approve you. They wanted to make sure that you were okay to make this film with me. And that's one of the reasons why they have agreed to meet with you. And I said, well, fine, you know, let's let's do this. And we we went into this office and uh, the the old man and two of his sons uh, came up to me and they welcomed me. Nothing, nothing was said, nothing at all. Um, uh, pleasantries were exchanged. And um, I think we had uh, some lemonade to drink. And then I was asked to go into a side office with the old man and two of these younger guys who, who had a drum. They closed the door, turned off the light, and this woman who had introduced me to them, who wanted me to make this film, she was asked to join us. We went into this room. It was pitch dark, because this was an inner office, and they started drumming, and they, had, uh, they, was, they were burning um, a sage, which is what a lot of tribal people do in this country, uh, shamans. They burn sage. I do it all the time in my house when I want to cleanse it of darkness or evil or uh, or whatever you know get rid of bad stuff you burn sage so, so what, you, you can you, incense does the same thing burning a candle does the same thing but anyway they were burning sage and I was, I was sitting in this office almost choking to death on the smoke pitch black pitch dark and suddenly on the ceiling I saw crackling like 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 um, a, a, a almost silver blue silver colored crackling like lightning, crackling along the ceiling. Going, <laughs> it was going from one side of the ceiling to the other in this little tiny room. And this was going on for about a minute and a half, and then it stopped. And then the drumming continued for about another 10 or 20 minutes, and thank goodness it ended because I thought I was going to choke to death with all this smoke you know, from, from the sage. And they opened the door, fresh air, and nobody said anything. We left the office, we went out, out, and then the rest of the family joined us, and more refreshments were... Nobody said anything about anything, and then my friend, um, this lady who had brought me to the to this to this meeting, um, I went up to her and I said, "By the way, Julie, did you see what I saw on the, on the ceiling?" And one of the young men heard that, and he instantly said, "Did you see something?" And I said, "Yes, I did. I was almost embarrassed to say that I'd." that I'd seen this crackling, lightning-like effect on the ceiling. And he immediately went to the old man, to the patriarch and the mother, and he said, he saw it, he saw it, he saw it. And they came up to me, and the old man said, then you have seen, the, you are the one to make the film. Because if you had not seen that, then your, our ancestors would not have approved you. That was the test. We were not going to ask you, but you, told, you offered the information, and therefore we give you permission to make the film about our family and our ancestor and whatever else. That was the most extraordinary thing. So I've had lots of experiences like that. I, uh, back in South Africa, I have two little, uh, two, two, two uh, kids that were almost my godchildren, although they weren't really my godkids, but they were close enough to be my godchildren. And two little guys, they were five and six, and they often used to point up to a, a vent in the top of the wall of of, of one of the rooms of their house uh, where they lived with their parents. And they used to say, oh, the old man is coming back to visit us again. Mm. And they would see this often. And, you know, the parents would immediately say, stop talking. You know, you're imagining it. It's not true. And I said to the parents, I said, don't stop them. Ask them more. Ask them more questions. Ask them what he looks like. Ask them if it's the same man they saw last time. Don't stop them. Don't tell them that they're not seeing it. Probe. Ask questions. Maybe they are seeing something. Let's be open-minded enough. 
Um, and this happened many, many times. And the kids kept describing this old man, you know, and he had a beard and, you know, he had blue eyes. And then he would go back through the vent, they would say. And so one day I said to their parents, I said, you know, why don't you go and make some inquiries? Who were the previous owners of this house? And the father eventually did. And um, apparently an old man had passed away in a room on the other side of that wall. And he, his description fitted perfectly what these two little children were seeing. Huh. So again, for me, this was evidence um, of the fact that, you know, we, 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 we live in a world, we, we, we are spiritual beings. Who was it who said, you know, we're spiritual beings having a temporary physical experience? Well, that's absolutely true. I have no doubt about that at all. Uh, Dr. Robert John, who a very, very well-known scientist who worked at Princeton University, he used to run an, uh, a unit there called the PEAR unit, which stood for the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Unit. And what he did, very, very hush-hush, because Princeton didn't want to make too much of a fuss about this, because Princeton has its, you know, it's an Ivy League university, it has a reputation, and they didn't want to say that they're doing strange experiments. But what Robert John did over a period of like 25 years was to prove that consciousness itself is, has energy. It's not just a thought that exists in synapses in the brain. It in itself has an energy to it in the same way that light has energy. Light's, light is photons. He believed that consciousness has the same uh, effect that, 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 that photons have. It, it, it can actually move physical objects. And how did, he dis how did he discover this over a period of 25 years with his researcher, uh, his fellow researcher, uh, Brenda Dunn? She's written a lot of books about this. Uh, Robert John, unfortunately, has passed away since I did the film. I, I filmed him, an interview with him, and this is for Beyond, Beyond Death, the, the same show that I mentioned earlier. But Brenda Dunn is still around, and she runs uh, an organization that investigates consciousness. And what they did was they found that they would have what people, I think they called them, uh, um, they didn't call them test subjects, they had another name for them, but people would be told influence or try to influence a random number generator just, a, just a, an electronic instrument that puts out random numbers. Try and make a certain number appear more often than other numbers. See if you can do that purely by thinking about it. Mm. And time and time and time and time again, over a period of 25 years, they proved that this was possible. And the person doing this didn't have to be in the same room, didn't have to be in the same building, but even not even in the same continent. They had test subjects in Australia they would ha they would organize a certain time. They'd say, right, this, the the uh, the experiment would begin at eight o'clock our time, three o'clock your time, or whatever it it was. Influence, try and make the number three appear more often than not. And again, it was proven again and again that this was possible to do. He had little um, electric um, battery powered cars on a tabletop, and he said, you try and make that that little toy car turn left more often than turning right and people would do that and again it was proven at least 60 or 70 percent of their experiments proved that, that 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 could happen again consciousness can exert an influence on something they he did all sorts of things like the the the, the, the swing of a pendulum can consciousness influence the swing of that pendulum can consciousness influence the height of a little water fountain make it go low or high 
Yeah. Again, they proved that this was possible to do. It, there are more than uh, ample amount of, of written material now that people can read about this. And, 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 and Robert John is one of the most, you know, um, respected uh, engineers. He's not a, uh, you, know, um, 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 uh, you know, someone who believes in, 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 in random nonsense. These were proven scientific experiments. So we know that there's more to life and ourselves and our consciousness than, 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 than uh, most people believe. And I think it, 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 the, the potential for us on this cosmic journey that we're on uh, is, is, is endless. I, the, the, there's no horizon. There is no limit to what is possible. You know, let's, let's, take, um, let's take UFOs, for example. I, I, I'm, yes. Uh, um, and, 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 and extraterrestrials. And by the way, I think that this may be the year of disclosure, as the UFO community likes to call it. You know, we've now seen footage that was photographed by fighter pilots off the USS Nimitz um, um, aircraft carrier off the coast of San Diego a year ago of these UFOs doing amazing things uh, over the Pacific, flying and turning and stopping and doing things that is physically impossible for anything that we humans have made. Um, and uh, I'd, uh, um, UFOs are, are, there is absolutely no question that we're not alone in the universe. If we think uh, th that we are, I mean, that is one of the most monstrous uh, um, thoughts one can possibly have. It's absolutely absurd when we think of the number of star systems and galaxies out there, and certainly the number, what is now called exoplanets that we now know exist, there must be billions of them. We cannot possibly be alone. And, you know, I've dug deep into ancient uh, uh, roots of all sorts of uh, cultures and, and, and societies and civilizations around the world. I've, uh, there's a wonderful guy called Zechariah Sitchin who's written extensively on ancient Sumeria and trying to interpret ancient clay tablets. Um, and on and on and on. We have possibly been visited by extraterrestrials time and time again uh, throughout history. In fact, it probably goes back if not centuries, probably even thousands or millions of years, uh, that we are not alone and we have been, um, we certainly have. Now, you know, people say, well, when, 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 the, when the UFO lands, you know, on Trafalgar Square or on the White House lawn, we'll believe it. Well, I, 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 it's not as simple as that because we are the hostile ones, not them. They're more worried about us than we should be worried about them. Most of them are not hostile. I think that there are many, many species out there. Some of them may be a little less uh, friendly than others. We don't, we can't be too sure of that. But it just is so obvious that 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 is more out there than we know. Years ago, when I was living in Canada, the year was 1966. I was working on a documentary on the history of housing in Canada. How housing and small settlements developed all over Canada, and we were working in the province of of Saskatchewan. And it was a small crew, um, and we were staying in a motel because we had to go and photograph uh, a sequence at a potash mine. And, and, and Saskatchewan is a very, very flat province. You know, it, there's corn growing there and, and so on, but it's, it's flat as a draft board. Um, but this potash plant was in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Saskatchewan, and there was a little town, I don't know, about 30, 40 miles away, and we stayed at the only motel there. 
uh, for preparing ourselves for the visit to this potash plant. Why did we go to the potash plant? Well, because that was the reason why this this town, the, a town, was developing in that area, and 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 how and why communities communities gather and and spread as because you know workers for this potash plant, uh, as would happen you know around a gold mine or a, an oil well, and. Um, Potash is a, is a white substance that comes out of the ground. They use it for fertilizer. And uh, in the morning, we were driving to the, to the, to the, to the plant. It was an absolutely crystal clear day. And we could see way, way ahead in the distance, about 40 miles away, this, this column of white dust-like smoke coming from the potash plant and a cloud above it. Now, obviously, this was coming from the, the mining that, that, that they were doing. And eventually we, we arrived at the plant at the main gate and uh, the guy, uh, the guard at the gate said, you guys get better get down there as quickly as you can because there's something sitting up there in that cloud of white dust up there. And we said, what, like what? And he said, we don't know, but up in that cloud of, 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 of white stuff up there, there's something inside there. And we drove down to the plant and, um, I, you know, I said to the director, I said, look, I set up the camera and I put on a long lens and see if I can see anything in there. Yeah, sure. He said, you, you go ahead and do that while I go and talk to the, to the, to the mine manager and plan the day's shooting. I set up the camera in the parking lot uh, and um, put on a long lens. I don't remember exactly what focal length it was, probably 300 millimeters or 600 millimeters, something like that, more likely 300 millimeters. And, um, trained it on that, on that white cloud that was sitting above the potash plant. And then about 20 minutes later, there was a slight breeze came up and this, 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 this cloud cleared very, very briefly. And in the cloud was a glint, a hint, a, a kickback of something metallic. And uh, there was um, uh, two members of the, of, the, of, of, of the company were standing around with me smoking. And they said, yeah, yeah, there it is, there it is. Do you see it? Do you see it? And I turned on the camera and ran some film and the breeze came along again, and there was this object as clear as bell, the circular disc-like object with a, with a, a tripod-like uh, uh, structure underneath it with a triangle uh, connected to this tripod. In other words, think of, a, think of a, a, a triangle and then three prongs connecting it to the disc above it, all very metallic, no windows, no nothing, but like, like silver, silvery color, like metal like a silver coin, uh, aluminum of, of, an, of an airplane fuselage. And uh, I ran film. Now, it, it, people have often said to me, well, how big was it? Uh, that was before the days of the, of the 747 jumbo jet, but it, it was the equivalent of what, what eventually became the 747. It was that, it was that big. Yeah. And I ran about maybe 150 feet of film on it, and eventually the, uh, the, the breeze left and the cloud thickened up again and was hidden. And we got on with the business of filming at the plant, uh, but I never stopped looking up at that cloud, and neither did anyone else. But I separated the film, that 150 film, I, 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 I did, uh, took it out of the magazine, canned it up separately, because remember, this is the days of film, not videotape. You had to have it processed before you could see anything, and get it into a can, you know, store it away, and then send it back to Montreal for processing. I used to send all our film back every night by going to the local railroad depot, and send it back on the train all the way across the whole of Canada to Montreal uh, to go and get processed at the lab at the National Film Board. And I made a note on the on the on the, 
every 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 can of film you send back, you usually send a, a list of what you shot on it, which you tape to the can and you send it back and you tell the the lab, you know, send that to the editor and let the editor put it on the shelf until the director gets back so that we know what's on each roll. And on this particular roll, I said, unknown um, uh, material, hold for our arrival, uh, which I did. And I sent it back that night. And some weeks later, we eventually ended up back in Montreal. And now it's time to look at uh, the rushes or the dailies, as we call it here, um, the film that we had shot. And, you know, we went into the theater and looked, sat for a number of hours through a lot of very boring material of housing settlements and, you know, little small towns and whatever else. And at the end of it all, uh, the, the projectionist in the projection room said, do you want me to show this other reel that you sent here that says unknown material on it? And of course, you know, we said, yeah, yeah, we forgot, put it on. And he put it on the projector and ran it. And there it is. There is this object sitting in the cloud, this, this, this aerial, whatever it was. The, I think the term today is UAP, unidentified yeah. aerial phenomena, and not necessarily UFOs anymore. But anyway, uh, um, those days, we would have called it a UFO. So we looked at this and the director said to me, what the hell was that? And I said, I have absolutely no, no idea. And he said to the, uh, to the editor, um, maybe we should send that uh, down to the States. They're, they're, they're to, they have an organization down there, I think in, in, in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, that's doing research into this kind of stuff. It was called Project Blue Book. Uh, that's, yeah. He didn't call it by that name. But we did. Now, here is the problem. We were filming on what is known as reversal film and not on negative film. There's a big difference between the two. Reversal film, negative film, when you, when you photograph it, you get a negative image, and then from that you make your positive and you make your prints. Reversal film is what we used to use for photographing uh, Kodachrome slides. In other words, the film that you use in the camera is the one that, you, that, that, that comes out positive, not negative. So you, the film that you use in the camera, you make a slide of that and you can project that. So it was reversal film. It had a positive image, so it, need, it didn't need a print. It was the original camera, negative, original material from the camera. We should have made a copy. We didn't. We sent it to Project Blue Book. Frankie Johnson was the name of the, the secretary of the camera department. I shall never forget her name. She sent it by the courier service down to the States, and uh, no one thought about it for another, you know, three or four weeks. And one day I went into the camera department, and I said to her, Frankie, did we ever hear back from those guys uh, in, 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 in Ohio uh, about that film that you sent them? She said, oh, no, um, um, what's the time in Ohio? She said, oh, I can call them up now. So... She called them um, on the phone and they denied ever receiving the film, even though we received from them, they had signed the paper acknowledging receipt of the film. But what we were told is that the film never arrived. They said, what film? We never got it, you know, again, oh. a denial, a blatant denial that they had this. Well, I think the time has come because there's too much evidence now that there is too much stuff out there that we cannot ignore this anymore i think this recent um example of the uss nimitz fighters on exercise off the coast of san diego probably tipped the scales in the in, in the direction of actually making uh, um, um the revelation finally that we will be told you know it's 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 time to admit 
that this is these 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 uh, objects have been visiting us for many many years, and they predate Ro Roswell. Roswell, of course, is one of the most famous ones in 1947, the so-called crash that the, the United States Air Force eventually sp spun a lie and said, "Oh, it was only a weather balloon." It wasn't a weather balloon. It was a spacecraft that crashed, and bodies were found, and those body bodies were probably they still kept in cryogenics today either somewhere in area 51 or i'm i'm now hearing that there's a a, a place an underground facility in utah where there there are um where there are bodies being kept of extraterrestrials who knows um but it's been going on for a long long time i have personally met jacques valet a, a number of occasions um, I attend many conferences. I've gone to UFO conferences, and I've we have a thing here called Contact in the Desert once every yeah. year in Palm Springs, and I go to that religiously, where we investigate, you know, rewriting human history, rewriting ancient history, you know, looking at UFOs, looking at ghosts, goblins, and things that go bump in the night. It's a great gathering of people. Ninety percent of them, really, you can dismiss, and ninety percent of the folks who spin these stories is a bunch of hogwash and nonsense. But it's the one percent. Yeah. That's important. And that is what's important. And there's still so much out there that we don't know. So I did a show for the History Channel years ago. This is before Ancient Aliens uh, came out. Ancient Aliens is one of the most popular shows on cable television here in the States. But I did a show for the History Channel that predated that. And I think we called it Ancient Aliens or something to that effect. Um, I do believe it's actually on YouTube. I must check out and see if it's uh, if it's if it's if it is the show that I did. But it 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 took it took the story right back. There there are there are even um, um, illustrations on on walls in Egyptian tombs of circular objects in the sky. Um, and we know that this has been going on for a long, long time because there are, so there's so many records. And Jacques Vallée has amassed an, an incredible collection of paintings and artwork going back to medieval times that depict objects flying in the sky that look like you know flying saucers or whatever they are. But they are, they are unknown aerial objects in the sky. And he's brought out this amazing book, uh, which is now available. It's quite expensive, but it's an incredible book. It's a coffee table book with amazing illustrations uh, showing this phenomenon. He doesn't uh, try to pretend that he knows what they are, and he doesn't try to explain them away. He just offers you the evidence. There it is. People have been seeing this for centuries. And, you know, I have asked people in the tribal areas of South Africa, you know, do you ever see things at night? Do you ever see things in the sky? And a, a friend of mine uh, was uh, once visiting a group of sun bushmen, which are the, the, the last remnants of a Stone Age society. They live in the Kalahari Desert in Botswana and parts of Namibia. They're nomadic people. And he was doing research with them. Uh, they, they move around uh, every day. They, 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 they break camp and move somewhere else. They live off the environment. They, they, they hunter-gatherers. And uh, he was there with a the translator, and uh, he had he wanted to do um, an investigation into the trance dance that they do. These people do an amazing dance where the women drum, and the men go around the fire around and around and around and around and around until they go into another state of consciousness, and it almost allows them to time travel. It always allow almost allows them to do something. Allows them to do remote viewing, and what they do is they can see where the, the the wildlife will be tomorrow, where they can go and have a successful hunt. That's one of the purposes of these trance dances. 
where will they find um, um, uh, um, uh, their prey, um, you know, to, to live off? And uh, these trance dancers are pretty profound. And these are the people who do these amazing rock art. Uh, there, there's rock paintings that exist all over the Kalahari Desert that, that depict this. And that some of them even depict strange beings. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are, aren't aliens. They may well be that, that people have seen. And uh, so anyway, my friend was at this uh, camp uh, filming these people going around the fire. It was at night, uh, but it was a video camera. And so it was quite sensitive. And in the middle of, in the middle of this trance dance, one of the, uh, the, his translators said to him, look up, look up, look. And he looked up and he, he, he took this camera and he pointed up and there's this disc above this camp, uh, you know, probably a quarter of a mile high is this silvery disc. You could see it as clear as bell, as clear as daylight uh, hovering. And then, you know, he pans down again to the trance dance going around the fire and he shows me this footage. And I said, so Dave, you know, what was it? Did you ask? And he said, yeah, I did. I asked. I said to my translator, what is it? And the translator said, oh, don't worry about that. Those are just the people from the other world. They come all the time. Yeah. Ignore oh. it. You yeah. know, it's like, oh, that's, oh, that's bus number 14. It comes every day, <laughs> you know, at 11 o'clock. Just ignore it, <laughs> you know. Uh, the, the, the Aborigines, I mean, the people of South America, it goes on and on and on and on. We are not alone. There's still so much to find out. And I think this may be the exciting year that we finally get disclosure that, it, that, 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 that they, they being the authorities, uh, know uh, that you know, we have been visited and perhaps are being visited right now by entities from other parts of the, of the, of the galaxy or who knows, maybe from another dimension, maybe from another time, from another realm. Uh, anything is possible. And that's one of the lessons I've learned in my life, that anything is possible. Don't be gullible. Don't swallow everything. Don't believe everything you're told. If you hear something that sparks your curiosity, go as far as you can to find out as much as you can about it until you're satisfied that you accept it or you don't accept it, you believe it or you don't believe it, but don't accept everything you hear. In other words, don't be gullible, but be curious and keep an open mind about all things. Life, is, life offers you that prospect. Just keep an open mind. Life is an exciting experience to have, no matter how dark it sometimes seems to be. Well, you, you were the supervising writer on a number of series, including In Search of History and Mysteries yes. of the Bible, which I yes. was a huge fan of. You inspired me in so many ways without even knowing what that outcome would be. Did that change your views, particularly with the Bible? Did that change the way you thought about the Bible and religion? Well, it certainly gave me a very healthy respect for, for all religions. Um, and I certainly would not dream of criticizing any religion uh, uh, at all. It's not my place to do that. And I respect it. And I respect people who follow, who are very religious and who follow the doctrine. That's fine. But it's not for me. I find that it's, it, it limits one's, it limits one's vision. It, it's, it's too constrained. I, I think we need to think a little more broad mindedly than that. Um, what, what I find so interesting is that, you know, the book of Genesis has got some really interesting things in it. Mm. Uh, those, those five books of the, of, of the first five books of the old Testament are, are pretty interesting. Um, and of course the old Testament, the new, new Testament, of course, and the gospels, 
and there's almost a paper trail that you can follow when you get to the New Testament. Those old, old books of the Bible are really intriguing, particularly Genesis. Uh, you know, the, the order of events of creation. If one thinks of the Big Bang, everything that, that the Bible says, the order that things happen in that is exactly the way things were as science knows it today from the moment of the Big Bang. But then, you know, I don't think we're living in only one universe. I don't think that this is the only universe there is. There probably, even many scientists are now referring, phys physicists, you know, these are people who don't believe in, in ooga booga, things that go bump in the night. These are, you know, you know hardwired people who think very seriously about these things. And the terminology today is, there are multiverses. We live in a multiverse um, 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 a cosmos. There, yeah. there may be more than one than one universe, and I think they're absolutely right. I, and and now that we know, time is not fixed either. There is no such thing as time. Time is not constant. If you move faster, it changes time. Einstein predicted that, and now we know it's true. Um, you know, we've done experiments. You 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 have an atomic clock, one flying in a in a high flying aircraft at the speed of sound, one on the ground. Well, the clocks differ. They change. If you move them. The one clock will, be, will, will alter time. The faster you go, time moves more slowly. Physics proves this to us. Uh, so there's no such thing as time. There's no such thing as here or now. It's uh, um, um, geography and location. You know, all of these things are not necessarily fixed. And I think we have to start thinking along those lines and being a little more flexible in the way we look at the world. And I think the Bible is wonderful. I think those stories are marvelous. And the message of the Bible is what's important. You know, love thy neighbor, you know, and behave according to um, a set of rules. You know, uh, be nice to one another. Be respectful. Those are wonderful things. Is there a supreme being? I don't doubt for one moment that there is. There has to be a super, con a, a super consciousness that is above all and everything. But I don't think we can even begin to imagine it. It's certainly not an, not an old man sitting on a cloud looking down at us. Was, was, was Jesus the son of God? I think Jesus was probably one of the most enlightened human beings who ever lived. And, and I think we're all children of God. Uh, so... You know, I'm I'm a little more open than 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 those who follow the doctrine in in very very narrow forms. But I'm not knocking anybody. But I just think that the Bible is a wonderful avenue, if you like, to start expanding your consciousness and thinking on higher levels. And you know what? The most important thing is be respectful and and uh, um, um, and behave in a way that that treats all life forms with dignity. And I don't only include humans in that. I think that the way we treat animals on this planet at the moment is absolutely diabolical. Yeah. I think uh, factory farming, for example, is an absolute crime and will one day be looked upon by society in, in the future as, as absolutely barbaric uh, the way we, we treat animals and, you know, they, they're commodities. They're not, they're life forms. They're sentient beings. They have feelings and they have emotions, you know, but we don't take that into account. Um, so, you know, I, I find uh, the, the lessons are vast. And as long as one can, can keep learning things and keep, 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 keep an open mind about all things, life is, life is a, and, and the world and the universe and the cosmos is an exciting place to be in. Everyone, this is Lionel Friedberg, the author of Forever in My Veins. What you have heard 
is the tip of a very large iceberg. This man has had incredible experiences all across the globe with different people, different nationalities on different continents. This man has inspired me to do what I do. Now, Lionel, where can people read forever in my veins? How can they contact you? They can they can find me on my on my website. I have a website, and they can they can contact me there. I haven't they, they they can go to the email address, which is there. My website is my name Lionel Friedberg L I O N E L, and then no space F R I E D like fried, and then B E R G Lionel Friedberg dot com. That's my website. It'll take them directly to my email address. They can contact me there. It'll also take me to uh, to to my Instagram site and to my Twitter, um, and they can leave a message for me. I'd love to hear from folks. I I I I I, I welcome uh, uh, the opportunity to to open a discussion on on any topic with anybody because I want to learn. You know, I'm always ready to learn and or to hear anybody else's point of view. So please, I I would welcome people contacting me. And I think people will. I honestly, genuinely believe people will be contacting you. They're going to have so many questions. And as I've said, we've spoken for two hours. But what we've covered is just the tip of the iceberg. Forever in My Veins is available from www.o-books.com. That's O-Books. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are from. And particularly in this time, of our life. We need hope, adventure, exploration. We need to be pioneers for a, a better future for all of us. And there is no better way to begin that journey, that healing for all of us, to look at the life of Lionel Friedberg. We're forever in my veins. It will change you. It will inspire you. It will excite you. It's amazing. This has been possibly my favorite interview I have ever, ever conducted in my life. I have sat here humbled in the presence of this fantastic man who has brought life and mystery and adventure through our TV screens into our lives. This gentleman has spent his entire life for the betterment of mankind, for the people of South Africa and Africa. This is a true gentleman in every sense. All the adventurers we grew up watching on television in the, in the cinemas. This is that man. He's an embodiment of adventure. Lionel, I cannot thank you enough. I'm honoured and privileged in my little cottage in Haverford West, West Wales, to speak to an idol, a man that inspired me when I had my darkest times to peer into the darkness and ask, what if? what is out there. Thank you so much, Lionel. You're one of the most incredible men I've ever met in my life. Thank you for all you do from everybody on a spinning blue globe in the cosmos. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Gavin. I, I'm, I'm, I'm speechless, but it's been my, uh, my honor and my privilege to, to be here. Thank you so much. I really mean that. Thank you. And I've got a feeling, right, this is going to be the first of many interviews because I think there's many, many rabbit holes we can go down, not just from your life adventures in forever in my veins, but just some of the views, opinions and experiences you've had that are kind of like, you know, I think we, we need to we need to hook up again and have that second interview. I spoke to somebody the other day, Lionel interviewed you. He said I could easily have sat there for another six hours wow. because he said this guy is just a testament 
to all that is good with oh the human goodness. race. So oh here we goodness. go. It's not just me. It's just not me. Thank you for all you do, sir. Thank you. Oh, Thank my you. Lord. I'm so uh, I'm overwhelmed, Gavin. Thank you so much, mate. Bless you. I really mean that. Bless you. You are listening to the Paranormal Chronicles Network. Please remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Visit theparanormalchronicles.com for paranormal news, reports, pictures, audio, and video content. Find us on Facebook at The Paranormal Chronicles. Together, we explore the unknown. The International Chart Topping. Haunted Horror of Haverford West has been described as terrifyingly real, a must-read, shocking and chilling brilliance, genuinely worrying and chilling, utterly frightening, don't read before bed. Described as one of the spookiest writers out there, best-selling author G.L. Davies presents Haunted Horror of Haverford West. The true paranormal account that is shocking the world. Dare you enter? Dare you read? Haunted Horror of Haverford West is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, and wherever books are sold. Pray you never have to live there. Is the poltergeist syndrome the only type of paranormal phenomena that can really be proven? Read Poltergeist, a new investigation into destructive haunting today. Available on e-reader and wherever books are sold. Visit www.sixth-books.com for more information. Become the alchemist of your world. In The Secret of the Alchemist, Colm Holland reveals how you can discover the power to miraculously change the world around you beyond all recognition and for the better. Colm will tell you the story of his encounter with Paolo Coelho and his best-selling book, The Alchemist, and how discovering the secret gave him the insights to achieve true empowerment in his life and how you can too. Read The Secret of the Alchemist today. Available from wherever books are sold. Visit www.o-books.com to learn how you too can become the alchemist of your life. This is Jason Bland, host of Midwest Paranormal Presents Paranormal Soup, where we stream live as a webcast every Sunday night, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern, with guests who will blow your mind. Live ghost box sessions where you can call into the show to see if the spirits will talk to you. And the World Wide Web of Weird, with the latest in paranormal news and evidence. We're bringing the weird every Sunday night, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern, on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. Paranormal entities assaulting us. Ghost Sex The Violation is the best selling true account and study of paranormal sexual abuse. Ghost Sex The Violation by GL Davis is available on Kindle and through Amazon. Pray this never happens to you. What if the after effects of a near death experience were undeniable? What if a person could suddenly produce high quality paintings of the afterlife, or if they acquired the ability to compose classical symphonies? Read Shine On. 
the remarkable story of how I fell under a speeding train, journeyed to the afterlife, and the astonishing proof I brought back with me. Read Shine On today on e-readers and wherever books are sold. Visit www.o-books.com today. In 2009, one woman believed she was abducted by aliens. What followed was a terrifying ordeal of alien visitation, nightmarish visions, encounters with terrifying creatures, a connection to the past, and a prophecy of destruction on the scale never seen before. Read Harvest, a true story of alien abduction by G.L. Davies, the true account that is changing the world's view on alien abduction cases. Harvest, a true story of alien abduction, is available from wherever books are sold. Should these events be true, then no one is safe.